Hi everyone, this is Megan from Hauntedology. Before we get started on this week's episode, I want to take a second to tell you about a new podcast that I came across called Ruck Up. Ruck Up podcast is based on military, law enforcement, security professionals, and outdoor enthusiasts around the world. The host has even interviewed security professionals working in high-risk areas, police instructors, CEOs, business gurus, and many more. Also, they take a look at how to prevent risk in everyday life, and they give you weekly tips on basically how to stay safe and stay off of my topic of discussion list so that you don't become a angry haunted spirit so if that sounds like something you want to avoid i would head on over to their podcast right now and give it a listen thanks guys hope you enjoy the show at ruck up podcast we take a little bit of a different approach we take industry professionals from law enforcement military security and outdoors enthusiasts all around the world and we hear their story so let's hear it attack or infiltration or suspected infiltration and we have to be ready to uh, We're all re- allegedly massacred by the, the crown prince. And I was there not to do with that. I arrived the day after. Check us out at our website at rockupmedia.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to Hauntedology. My name is Megan. I'm your host. And along with my mom, who is your co-host, we tell you stories every week that are of hauntings or paranormal activity in different cities or a city in America and eventually the rest of the world. It is our belief that every city has a story to tell and it's our job to tell it. So we thank you guys for listening and we can't wait to dive into this week's episode. So let's go. Normally, we have ghost stories to tell you from beings that haunt the places that we are discussing. This story is a little different. This story is of a house that has seen so much tragedy that the spirits cannot leave it. We don't have actual interaction stories this time, but rather a legend that just makes a house worthy of a haunting and one of the most famous houses in Savannah, Georgia. This episode is a little different. I'm going to tell you the legend of the house, but afterward, where it gets really weird and dicey, is when we dive into who these people were, where they came from, and how they ended up to be where they were on that fateful day. Lurking quietly on the corner of Madison Square is one of the darkest fixtures in all of Haunted Savannah. Located at 6 West Harris Street in Madison Square is the Sorrell Weed House. Oddly enough, the family even named the mansion Shady Corner because at the time of the construction, it was nicely surrounded by many shade trees. But in the end, the family's story would be shady to say the least. I can believe that. It's, it's a very beautiful lot. And it is shady. It's right on that um square. It, it It's just... It is very shady. And it's what you dream or think of the southern manor in the city, though, not a country southern manor. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I can definitely see that, too. Mm Mm-hmm. The legend of the Sorrel Weed House is quite 
complicated and a little disturbing. It has to do with the home builder, Francis Sorrell, the merchant. He did build his wealth on business, but he still kept a number of slaves on the Sorrell property. So this is a picture of slavery that's the very urban slavery. Okay. All right. Makes sense. The way the story goes, Francis Sorrell supposedly had an intimate relationship with an enslaved woman in his house. Her name was Molly. His wife's name was Matilda Sorrell, and she actually was said to have a very close relationship with Molly. It was recounted in family letters that they cooked dinner together and kind of bonded in the kitchen. And every night she would help Mrs. Sorrell to make dinner. But one night she never showed up to help prepare dinner. It was at this point that she began to look for her. She looked all through the main house and couldn't find her. Once she had cleared the main house and realized Molly was no Nowhere to be found there. She then began to move her search to the courtyard and she searched the courtyard over no Molly. So then she moved her search to the carriage house. Now Matilda and Molly as having this kind of mother-daughterly bond from cooking together and spending time together, Matilda treated her a lot better than some of the others. Molly was even given her own room in the upstairs quarters of the carriage house, which is a luxury that slaves weren't afforded in those days. You shared your room, but Molly had her own room. So she goes in the carriage house up the stairs, trying to find where Molly could possibly be. She walks into Molly's room and there she finds Molly. The only problem is Molly was not alone. Molly was with Francis and much to Molly's distaste it was Francis forcing himself upon Molly and she had no choice but to go along with it because of who she was and where her stage was in life. Matilda saw this as an act of betrayal from both of them and it just pushed her over the edge. So the story goes that when she found out about this affair, she was so distraught that she actually jumped off the home's balcony to her death. All the slaves and housemaids were said to be begging her in their room where the balcony was begging her to, you know, just come back off the ledge. It's okay. Don't do this. Regardless of how many of their slaves actually came in the house to try to save her with her history of depression, this was just like the final straw. No, I can believe that. I mean, in that day, society, I mean, these were high society people. Things don't happen like that with them. So, as the legend goes, she ends up flinging herself off of the balcony. Her head crashes into the stone steps below and blood's just like splattered all around her and is just leaking out of the wound on her head. And she is actually said to be the ghost that haunts this house. The whole family turns out for the funeral and somehow Molly ends up making it through all of her duties, even though she felt like her heart had been ripped to pieces. The legend continues on by saying that Molly crawled into bed and fell sound asleep. A nearby sound then woke her and she called out, was someone there? She listened intently but didn't hear anything and she thought it was just her imagination. So she rolled over and tried to go back to sleep but suddenly felt very strong arms grab her and were holding her. And she struggled and couldn't breathe. And slowly the room filled with sound and more and more people came in. One of the arms then loosened around Molly and Molly filled her lungs and screamed. She cried out, help, oh help, Francis, help. And it was then that Molly saw a rope and candlelight hanging from the ceiling. And it was at this point that Francis came running into the carriage house. The crowds parted and he found Molly with a rope fastened around her neck. Molly screamed and moaned, oh my God, and it was too late. No one could save her. 
She was lifted up, her head placed in the noose, and she was dangling from the ceiling, and it was finally over. Among the evidence of a haunting are glowing handprints, which can only be seen under UV light, along with a hanger that seems to move on its own in the upstairs part. There's also a chilling EVP, which is an electronic voice phenomenon recording in the carriage house, which is where Molly was murdered, coincidentally. And the EVP is reported to be the voice of a long-dead slave who was murdered in the courtyard carriage house. Who are these people and what were their lives like? Let's find out. Who are these people and what were their lives like? Let's find out. The man who would build this house is known as Francis Sorrell. At this time in his life, before he moved to Savannah, he was going by the French version of his name, Antoine. And he was supposed to have the life of luxury. He was born in what is now Haiti. His early life is not very well documented as it began in another country. His father was an engineer and a French military officer and a sugar plantation owner. All we know of his mother was that, was that her name was Eugene, and she died before her son was six months old. Of his mother's character, it is said that she was known as a free mulatta. And they shared, for those of you guys that don't know, because I didn't until I did the research for this episode, free mulattoes are a type of slave that share equal rights with whites. And this is actually going to be important later on. Okay. His mother, she herself came from a wealthy plantation family. And this is all that's really known about her. And as far as his family as a child, siblings aren't mentioned. So I can only assume that he's an only child. Francis's dad, Antoine, would end up leaving Haiti, or what is now known as Haiti, as a result of the slave rebellion that began in 1791 and eventually would culminate in the overthrowing of the white plantation owners and the outlying of slavery. So the pair would then end up in Louisiana to live with family members. But Antoine apparently is said to have abandoned his son as a young teen and the boy was forced to fend for himself and never saw his father again. Although they would correspond a few times later in life. He ended up coming to Savannah because he was invited into a partnership by Richard Henry Douglas from Baltimore at the firm Douglas Sorrell. And in 1812, he would come to Savannah to manage the firm's southern headquarters. When Francis first came to America, he knew no English, only French, and, and ended up staying in a boarding house run by a lady named Madame in Laval. She was his mother's sister, and she had a daughter named Rodolphine. This daughter was slightly older than Francis, but he ended up falling in love with her anyways, and it is said that he used his own money to better her life, but in the end, she married a naval officer instead, and he was considerably older than her, and it completely shattered Francis. It was after this that he learned to speak English, and changed his name to the American version, Francis Sorrell. After this, he would never speak about his parents again, and according to his daughter and Anita, he would become extremely angry. And one question about his life in St. Dominique, which is now present-day Haiti, would just completely, like, set him off. Francis had decided to live as a white man, and he was welcomed in, welcomed into upper-class society, even married into the slaveholding Douglas and monthly families in Virginia, and was able to keep this secret so well from the family throughout his life they perhaps never even realized he came from an african heritage oh that's an irony isn't it though and he held slaves in the latter part of his life i can't really understand that definitely seems that he would have been helping them mm -hmm. freeing them i don't know 
Francis even held important positions associated with the shipping industry, becoming Portuguese vice consul for Georgia as early as 1816, and he became a U.S. citizen in 1824. One of the many prestigious positions he held was chairman of the board of trustees of the Independent Presbyterian Church. He also helped found and was a patron of Savannah Poorhouse and Hospital. The real story here comes when he builds a home for his family. And as with many buildings in the historic district, the mansion is built on a bloody Revolutionary War battlefield site. And that is Madison Square in the city of Savannah. Construction officially began in 1836 and ended in 1840. The house featured formal living and dining rooms, a parlor on the first floor, spacious bedrooms on the second, and a large brick-lined basement beneath the house. The family itself was known for lavish parties and celebrations with some of Savannah's most prominent people. Even General Sherman and General Lee have been said to have visited this family both before and during the Civil War. Okay. I bet mean, that was fun during the Civil War. I don't know. Shouldn't they have been a little busy? <laughs> no wonder we lost Lee. Come on, dude. Fraternize over the enemy. <laughs> Get your crap together, dude. <laughs> you gotta pick sides if you're gonna be the head, of, the head of the South. So, this just gives you a little background on Francis and a little interest into the fact that he is actually of African descent, but with his mother being white, he doesn't really show it. So, he can play the part of a white man as he's now chosen to do. Okay. He just can't choose sides on anything, though. Not really. I mean, he's got he's got General Lee and Sherman in the same house. He's not white, but then he's choosing he's going to play the part of white. And he's like, dude, you want to get a backbone and choose what you are, who you are, and what you stand for? Well, he was white, and he did he completely hid his African heritage. Right, but I mean, then he owned slaves, and yeah, yeah, no. And I guess he owned slave because he thought himself as white and just abandoned his Haitian heritage. I mean, yeah, makes sense. I mean, because I would have probably done it. But what I would have done is I would have taken care of my slaves. This way I can kind of protect this many of the slaves as a way of helping my actual race. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's why he did it, though. Doesn't sound like that was his motive. Yeah, I'm not really getting that vibe. No, 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 neither did poor old Molly. In 1822, Francis marries his first wife, Lucinda Moxley, the daughter of a business partner. She was 12 years younger than him, and they also ended up having three children before she died of yellow fever in the 1827 outbreak, which was actually the first outbreak. So, completely brand new to the area. Like, this was the first time this disease had ever been seen. Right. It was at this point Lucinda's youngest sister by a year, Matilda and Douglas Moxie, would come help Francis with the children, and the couple would end up getting married in 1829. Yeah, he didn't, really didn't waste any time before she was, like, in the ground to marry her sister. <laughs> yeah, she was kind of cool. She wasn't cold yet. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, lukewarm. <laughs> a lot of men 
do that, a lot of men cannot be on their own. They can't be alone. They got to have, they would never admit it, but they've got to have that woman there to take care of them. Like, let her bones go off. <laughs> like, let the chill go down to the bones, for God's sake. She's a manita. After their marriage in 1829, the couple were going to have eight children, but only five of them would live to adulthood. Oh, that's sad. One of their children, Gilbert Moxley Sorrell, would actually serve as the youngest Confederate general in the Civil War. And then see, his son could make up his mind. This family was just wrapped up in prestige and everything that a Southern family should be during this period of time. But marrying into this family, Francis ended up obtaining more than a quarter of the cents of a state in Virginia. And his good fortune became overshadowed by the fact that Matilda was prone to periods of extreme depression. It's even theorized that he could possibly have turned to his own slaves for comfort and sexual companionship during these trying times. Note the sarcastic part in my voice when I said trying times. It's just like, I'm so, I'm sorry, this was so trying for you. Sorry my bout with depression was so hard for you. You know, people do things that are depression. She could have killed his behind. Sadly enough, this was a common fact that was ignored by a polite society. True. Sad, but true and sickening. Then there's Molly. Of course, no records exist to support their affairs. The rumors of Molly paying with her life as a result of these affairs would never be committed to paper. The police would never investigate her death. No one would interfere with her death because she belonged to Francis. That's so sad. But true. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Yes. Someone could just kill this woman. And nobody would even... Nobody checked it out. Nobody? No. Nobody paid for it. There's no justice. No. The only way we actually have an idea of what occurred is by a census report. So, the 1850 census shows Francis having five slaves listed as black, including three females and two males. Another list under his name showed eight slaves designated as mulatto. Hmm. Remember what I said earlier about them being equal to their owners? Gotcha. Them being equal to the whites? So, he had... Five black slaves and then eight mulatto slaves. Okay. All right. This list included six females and two males. The mulatto list included five children as well, which are believed to be the children of some of the mulatto females. However, however, as custom was back in this time period, none of the slaves are listed as having names. The most important list, though, is the 1860 census, because this one was taken after Matilda's death. This list contains a record of five slaves, two female and three male, a lot less than the 1850 census. Just a little bit, yeah. Interesting. So, names of the other slaves can be verified through old family letters such as Old Mammy or Old Nanny, one of the eldest slaves they had, and she was one of their trusted mulatto slaves. Probably Nancy, as referred to in other letters, was the one that had some of the children, a boy named Andrew and a daughter named Judy. Judy also went to have children named William and Nancy, assumingly after her grandmother. But what we still cannot find find is any reference to anyone named Molly. Now, this doesn't mean that the story's fiction, though it was noted in a family letter that Matilda did indeed throw herself to her death that day standing on the balcony's edge. The whole story about Molly and Francis being involved with one another 
cannot be verified, Matilda Sorrell did commit suicide, whether or not Molly existed and whether or not she was the cause of Matilda's breakdown leading to her jump is really kind of a pointless part of the story because it still ends the same way with or without Molly being there. It still ends with Matilda's death and to her literally throwing herself to her death from the balcony, quote, quote, or maybe being pushed. I don't know. That's just me theorizing and throwing that in there. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out, figure out where I put Molly in my head. However, the question of motives and secret relationships cannot be verified by any evidence, so it seems to be in large parts a myth, and so does her reason for jumping. Because if the affair didn't really happen, why would she jump? Well, then that takes you back to the was-she-pushed theory. I mean, because it sure didn't take the heifer long to get married again. Exactly. He really was not broken up about it. I mean, I'm not going to marry you when she's not married to my sister. Yeah. Whatever it was. So... Did he need to get rid of poor little Matilda so he could go on to the next one? Because yeah, she kept getting all depressed and stuff, and she just wouldn't be with him at night in the bed. And Maybe she was too hard to handle. Shows behind hard to handle. I don't know. Very, very, very interesting. There are very real evidences of a haunting here, though. The glowing handprints, the sound of the... yeah. Long dead slave's voice who was murdered in the courtyard carriage house. Definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I do all of the writing and compiling of all the different stories myself. And it means a lot that you guys will sit here and listen to what I have to say. If you would like to reach out to me on social media, you can go to Instagram and go to at Megan Noel Podcasts. So M-E-G-A-N n-o-e-l podcasts or my personal instagram at the megan noel thank you guys so much for listening and i really appreciate it if you guys could give us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts to help others find the show that would be amazing and we would be forever grateful thank you guys and i cannot wait to tell you the next story